right, <clears throat> it's good to see everyone. I'm excited to um, be able to, uh, to talk about heaven with all of you this morning. I mean, what sweeter topic could there be? Um, and so it's really quite thrilling. And uh, I've been thinking about this probably for three or four years, the things that I've been working on in this book. And uh, you all are, uh, speaking gently, guinea pigs. So if there's something, you know, that you want to say, oh, that's off or whatever, now's the time before I, you know, send it into a publisher. So please uh, help me with that. But in any case, setting all that aside, uh, my purpose is that we would just have a, a sweet meditation on heaven. My, my feeling is that God has given us a lot of information in Scripture about our future heavenly life, and that most of us under underdevelop that. We, we don't tend to think a lot about it. Um, in a lot of the theologies that I've read, there's all kinds of stuff about soteriology, how sinners are made right with God. There's all kinds of things about ecclesiology, how churches should be set up and all that. There's just this tiny section on heaven, two or three pages. And uh, I just think there's a lot more that we could do. And I, I think the more we meditate on it and the more that we uh, study um, the better it's going to be for us. We're going to be energetic in God's service, uh, more zealous for personal holiness, more zealous to win the lost and to store up treasure in heaven. So that's my desire. So let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for a time to meet together with brothers and sisters. Thank you for your wisdom in setting apart local church uh, where we can meet with people who know us and we know them and we can develop our lives together. We thank you also for the beautiful uh, image and vision in the church, in the, in the scripture of the universal church, the worldwide movement of Christians, people from every tribe and language and people and nation assembled into one body. And uh, in the meantime, Lord, we're grateful for this place, First Baptist Durham, where we can come together and be ministered to, be fed the word, we can worship together and live life together. So I pray that you'd be with us now as we begin this study on heaven. I pray that you would uh, sustain and strengthen each of us to meditate, that our meditations will be based on scripture and not on idle speculations, but on the word of God. And I pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged for your service by this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope all of you got a handout. Um, I tried to strip down some of the things that I've been working on, so the handouts are going to be long, um, and I'll try to get through as much as we can. We don't have a lot of weeks. We only got about five or six weeks to go through, um, so there's a lot to cover. Uh, and I want to begin by just thinking about a theme that's hit me. Uh, started uh, noticing this in Scripture, but also see it in history. Uh, my fundamental conception of heaven is that heaven's all about a display of the glory of God. That's going to be the centerpiece in heaven. We're going to be drinking in the glory of God. And it occurs to me how human emperors love to show off the glory of their empires. This is a common theme. They put on display their greatness. Uh, I came across this quote a number of years ago by Caesar Augustus. Listen to this. I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. What an incredible statement. And there's, you know, a lot of truth to it. The development of Rome during Caesar Augustus was, uh, was incredible. Uh, there are still buildings that tourists see when they go to Rome that display the greatness of the Roman Empire and specifically of his reign. So he just, he's putting his, his glory on display. And so in, in his lifetime, there was a, a network, a developing network of roads. There was an old saying, all roads lead to Rome. And what he wanted was people from the distant reaches of his empire to travel over those roads. And when they got to Rome, to be overawed by what they saw. 
to see the grandeur of Rome, to have a sense of the overwhelming power of Rome and the greatness of the empire. And one scholar put it this way, Augustus desired visitors to, to a city to succumb to, listen to this, a trance-like state of blind obedience to his power. All right, you know, you can see the purpose of that. It's like when you come to Rome, it's like, what's the point in fighting this whole thing? And you just see the grandeur and the glory of Rome. Well, it's not just Rome that way. We also see it in uh, the Mongol Empire. Kublai Khan in 1275, Marco Polo was there, and he saw the greatness of the capital city uh, there, which uh, was shining like crystal, and it would, would, you could see the glory of, of Xanadu is what it was called, about 220 miles north of modern-day Beijing. And so when you came there, you just saw the splendor and the glory of the Mongol Empire, and that was put on display. We well, see the same thing in the Bible. There's number, numbers of these kinds of things. For example, the Queen of Sheba. When she came from distant parts of the earth, she'd heard about Solomon's fame and all of his glory and came to see it. And uh, her reaction is recorded for us in 1 Kings 10, 4 through 7. It says, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. Listen to this. There was no more breath in her. She's overwhelmed. She didn't know what to say. She's like, wow, I actually underestimated what I, what I, I thought it would be great, but I didn't realize it would be this great. So that's what she's thinking. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the reports I heard. Now, I just want to just freeze here right at this moment. Do you, you remember what Jesus said about this moment? He was talking about the people, the, the Jews of his own generation, and how they didn't really understand who he was, Jesus, I mean. And he said, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And what did Jesus say? One greater than Solomon is here. Any chance that Jesus' kingdom is greater than Solomon's kingdom? Any chance that our reaction to it will be similar if even like nothing compared to the, the, uh, the queen of the south when she saw it and there's no breath left in her, that we will be actually overwhelmed by the display of Jesus' greatness in his kingdom? Any chance that every one of us right now is underestimating the beauty and the glory of that place? And that if we meditated on it more and we could actually, to some degree now, have no more breath lift left in us now, it would actually give us energy for the works we have to do. It's not like some guilty pleasure uh, for Christians here meditating on heaven. It's something we're actually commanded to do. And so there's an example. Then, then there's other maybe not so famous examples like Hezekiah after his miraculous healing. After the miraculous deliverance at the gates of, of the city of Jerusalem uh, from the mighty Assyrian army, and some emissaries came from Babylon, and they would have been allies together with the Jews and other smaller uh, kingdoms against Assyria. And so this is earlier, earlier, this is before the Babylonian Empire. And so when they came to Hezekiah, Hezekiah gave them a tour of all of his treasuries and his armories and all the greatness of his kingdom. And they, and they saw that. Uh, it was a bad idea because it lodged a little you know, memory in the minds of the Babylonians. They said, hey, we'll come back here in about 100 years and we'll go ahead and take all this away. 
But Isaiah confronted Hezekiah and said, what did you show them? He said, they saw everything. There was nothing in all my palace and all my treasures and all my armories that I did not show them. Same kind of tour. Then there's Nebuchadnezzar who gave himself his own tour of his own kingdom. You remember that when he was uh, up on the palace of his roof and he looks out over Babylon. And it's the same kind of thing as Caesar Augustus when he said, I founded a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Uh, the most mighty empire on the, on the face of the earth, the Babylonian empire at that time. Uh, they had plundered all of these smaller, these lesser kingdoms, and, and there'd been a river of building materials of gold and silver and marble and all kinds of stuff to Babylon, and ma he made it a glorious place. And he was impressed with his own handiwork. And so he's there on the roof, uh, palace roof, and he makes this incredible statement, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And here's what I want to say. That statement spoken by a human emperor is sin. That statement spoken by Jesus is true. You see that? Is this not the new Jerusalem that I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty? It actually is. So that's where we're going in all of this meditation. You also have the same thing in the book of Esther. You remember how King Xerxes put on a, a lavish display of the power of the Persian kingdom. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and, his ma and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days, like half a year. And at the end of the time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with uh, fine white uh, and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with different design. Royal wine uh, flowed freely according to the king's bounty. Esther 1, 4 through 7. So here's, here's what I want to say. Amazingly, God desires to do the same thing for his guests. And that's in the heavenly kingdom. He wants to put on display his greatness. He wants to have a lavish display in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, new earth, of the greatness of his majesty and the power of his kingdom. And not just for a short visit, not for 180 days. Um, he wants to actually put it on display forever. He wants an eternal display of, of his glory and his majesty in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven, new earth. Could someone read for us Revelation 21, 9 through 11? So that's incredible, isn't it? There's John on the island of Patmos in exile, and um, he has a vision of the future. And he is taken away um, by the power of the Spirit to see the new Jerusalem, the glories of the place. And it's clear that in the command... Uh, from God through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John to write this down. He wants all of us to know it too. He wants all of us to have a sense of the greatness of the new Jerusalem, a sense of the glory. And as it says in Revelation 21:11, it's shown with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Also Revelation 21, 21 through 26. Someone please read that for us. All right, so when I make the statement that the glory of God, a display of the glory of God is the central issue, the central aspect uh, or experience in heaven, that's, these verses are teaching that, is what it's saying. That when we get there, it's all going to be about us drinking in the glory of God and <clears throat> for us to, to understand that. Now, in the, in the light of the kind of the angle that I've taken from the beginning of this class today, well, think of it this way. God's glory in his kingdom will be on display, not in the medium of marble like Augustus. I found a city of bricks, left a city of marble. 
um, or in colored tiles like the Kublai Khan, his medium, uh, him as an artist, his medium is human beings. Uh, the craftsmanship will be in people. Um, the work that he's done is in the elect from every tribe, language, people, and nation who are rescued from the dominion of satanic darkness, transformed by the gospel, and made to shine, as Jesus said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, that, that we ourselves will be the greatest display of the glory of God. My book that I'm working on is, is about a display of God's past works when we get to heaven. And so the basic thesis of the book is this, a great part of the glory of God in heaven will consist in looking backward, <clears throat> in God revealing his mighty acts of redemptive history by which he redeemed a countless multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This revelation of history will be for the amazement and joy of his redeemed and for the praise of his glory. So that's what this Bible study or this time together is about, our class here. That's what my book is about. There are other aspects of God's glory in heaven, and I'll talk about that briefly this morning. But my, my book and this class is about the backward look, looking back at what God did in this present age to get us to the new Jerusalem. All right, so the purpose of the book of Revelation, as we've seen, is a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's also a revelation of the future. These two hidden aspects. Christ is hidden from us. We don't see him. First Peter says, though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him. So we don't, we're not able to see Christ. The book of Revelation gives us an unveiling of Jesus in ways that we would have no other way of seeing him. Aspects of his, of his power and his greatness and his character that we would have no other display of. Revelation gives us that. But Revelation is also written to tell us about the future. So right from the beginning, Revelation 1.1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's the centerpiece, which God gave his servants to show what must soon take place. Okay? So it's a revelation of the unseen Christ, and it's a revelation of the unseen future. What does the future look like? And some of that also is a revelation of the heavenly realms, the invisible, spiritual, heavenly realms. Someone read for us Revelation 4.1 there in your outline. So isn't that incredible? John invited to be elevated up off of the Isle of Patmos and go into the heavenly realms through a doorway and to see in the invisible spiritual realms. So we have all of this unveiling of that which we cannot see with our own eyes. Uh, but the centerpiece of it in Revelation 21 and 22 is an unveiling of the future, an unveiling of the, the radiant bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. And so Revelation 21, 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So those are some of the most spectacular verses in the Bible. They give us a vision, a foretaste of the glory of the new Jerusalem and of the new heaven and the new earth. How beautiful that will be. By the way, Revelation 21.4 will be an important verse for our continued study. It's going to be very important for us to hold on to the fact that in heaven there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. So what I'm going to advocate in this book is perfect memory, no pain. And it's hard for people to even grasp that. It's hard for us to you think about all your painful memories, things that you're ashamed of, 
things you wish hadn't happened, all of that. And uh, one of the prime questions people ask me is like, like in heaven, are we going to like remember everything? You know, like everything? And uh, it's like, well, what do you want? Kind of like a selective memory, um, kind of a, you know, a picking and choosing, or do you want a total memory wipe, like when you get rid of your smartphone and sell it to somebody? Uh, you know, what is it you want? Complete, you know, or I really think it ends up all or nothing. I think a mediating kind of thing is strange. I don't know how we could even understand that. What you would like to be forgotten, somebody else would like remembered. I'd like to remember what Saul of Tarsus was before his conversion, because it makes an incredible story. Now, for his part, you know, I don't think he'd like to forget it either because I think he sees it this way. But you can imagine someone saying, I don't want that disgust. I don't want to remember what I was before I was converted or even things I did after I was converted that bring me shame in this world. But I think it really ends up all or nothing. So I'm advocating for all. But just no pain, no shame, just memory and glory. Chuck, were you going to say something, brother? Yeah, I mean, it's such a tender thing, isn't it? You know, you think about... Um, like when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they were terrified and, and Jesus came over and touched them and said, don't be afraid. So there's that, that touching. Um, and so I think there's that tenderness. And basically, to me, that means from this point forward, there's no more weeping. There's no more sadness. I believe the wiping away of tears is best put at the end of your time in Judgment Day. All right. When that moment is done, from that point forward, I would advocate a difficult judgment day and a completely free and joyful heaven. Um, but we'll, we'll get to all that. But I think that's what I mean. So from that point on, there's no sorrow. None at all. No, no sadness. Just memory. And the centerpiece of the memory is about the glory of God. You'll be liberated, finally, from yourself. Liberated from fanatical commitment to self-interest. From how all of this makes you look. You won't be thinking about that. What will you be thinking about? How does it make Christ look or God look? And it makes him look very good. <laughs> what he did with you as a sinner, what he did with countless millions of people like you as sinners, that's going to be incredibly glorious. And you just want the story told. You'll be free. You'll be set free. And you'll want your story told. You want other people's story told. And some of the stories will be greater than others. Some of the stories will be lesser than others. But the stories are going to be told. That's what I'm saying. Or they get wiped out. And I frankly just don't see any point in that. But not only that, I'm going to show that I just don't think it's scriptural. I think there are clear scriptural evidences that we'll remember in heaven our earthly lives. And we'll get to all that. All right. So for me, meditation on heaven is beneficial, it's sweet, it's empowering, and it's commanded. Could someone read Colossians 3, 1 through 4 for us? Isn't that incredible? Since you have died with Christ, you should be setting your mind, setting your heart on, and there are two things, Things above and things to come. Put it that way. Christ is coming. And when Christ who comes, when he comes, he who is your life, then you will appear with him in glory. You will be glorious when he comes. First John says, because you'll see him as he is. You'll be transformed. So set your mind and your heart on that. In Colossians 3, it then goes on to say, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed. So that leads right into the internal journey of holiness. We would say also that people who are most heavenly-minded uh, are most empowered to do external journey ministries, such as evangelism and missions. They're just heavenly-minded. They suffer greatly. They suffer well. Uh, they lead people to Christ, and then they die and go to heaven. And those, the heavenly-mindedness is a, a power source for both personal holiness, putting sin to death, and also um, leading others to Christ. So that's the point. We should meditate on heaven. 
more, much more than we do. Um, we see this in Pilgrim's Progress, and we're going through this uh, on Wednesday evenings. You're uh, welcome, welcome to come. Love to have you. We're just kind of walking through that great book that John Bunyan wrote at the end of the uh, 17th century, uh, an allegory of the Christian life. And right before they cross over the river of death, they get to this place called the Enchanted Ground and Beulah Land. All right, Beulah uh, means married, the beautiful land. And this is what Bunyan wrote. Now I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims, having traversed the enchanted ground and then entered into the country of Beulah, which means married, with uh, the way passing directly through it, the air in that place was found to be very sweet and pleasant. So they rested and took comfort there for a time. Here the pilgrims were in sight of the celestial city to which they were going. Here they also they were able to meet some of the inhabitants of that place. For in this land some of the shining ones walked quite frequently because it was located upon the very borders of heaven. So this is uh, basically Bunyan's heavenly meditation. You're on this side of the river, you're in this land, but you can see the celestial city and you can smell the air of the celestial city and you can have a sense of fellowship with some of the inhabitants of the place. Uh, this is just his way of writing about uh, heavenly meditation. Bunyan wrote this, As a man must have much of the spirit that sees much of God and his goodly matters, so he must also uh, be, uh, so, um, uh, must he, uh, be also carried away with it. He must by it be taken off from things carnal and earthly and taken up into the glory of things that are spiritual and heavenly. So that's pretty good uh, to, to be taken away from things carnal, taken away from the dominating thoughts of this present world and all of its corruptions, taken away from the anxieties of this present world and all, of the, all the difficulties, the things that press your heart and make you so miserable and anxious and sad, and to be given you know, just the wings of a heavenly flight of meditation into heaven. The, these things are beneficial for you and they're helpful for you. And actually, as we've seen in Colossians 3, commanded. It's something you should do. Uh, also, John Calvin commanded it, but Calvin, typical of him, gave a serious warning about it. All right, so this is just John Calvin. Uh, if Jacob saw that he was a pilgrim in the land, which had been promised to him for a perpetual inheritance, it is clear that his mind was not fixed on this world, but was raised above the heavens. The apostle infers that in so speaking, <clears throat> the fathers have plainly shown that they had a better country in heaven. For if they were pilgrims here in their fatherland, their permanent home is elsewhere. If the patriarchs in spirit took flight through the clouds of darkness to a heavenly country, what must we do today when Christ stretches forth his hand to us clearly from heaven to draw us to himself? If the land of Canaan did not hold them back, how much more ought we to be unhindered when no firm resting place in this world is shown to us? He's talking about Hebrews eleven thirteen where the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, confess that they were aliens and strangers in this world, that here they had no permanent home, and they confess they were aliens and strangers because they were looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Interestingly, there in Hebrews eleven sixteen, it's both a country and a city. And so there's this beautiful world, and there's this focal point city as well. So that would be the new, new universe, new heaven, new earth, and then the capital city, the new Jerusalem. 
And so if it, what Calvin's saying here, John Calvin, he's saying, look, if, if the patriarchs way, way back then knew that they were aliens and strangers, and even the promised land didn't hold their imaginations, they knew that it wasn't about this place where they were pitching their tents and moving from oak tree cluster to oak tree cluster. They said, this isn't it. Um, we are aliens and strangers here. We actually didn't own, they didn't own the land. Remember how Abraham had a dicker uh, for a burial place for Sarah? Remember all that? The point of that long dickering is not to show you how to bargain with Arab-speaking people or whatever. That's not the point of it. The point is that here they have no permanent ground. They hadn't come into their inheritance yet. They died not having received the things promised. And so their hearts were set on a future world. And what Calvin's saying, how much more than we? We're not them. We're not the patriarchs. We haven't had any direct promises made to us concerning the land we're walking on, etc. We are spiritual uh, heirs to Abraham, uh, sons and daughters of Abraham, we should have the same heavenly focus because here there is no permanent place for us. That's what Calvin's saying. But uh, I wrote my PhD dissertation on John Calvin's eschatology. And whatever anybody knows anything about it, they always ask me, was he millennial or amillennial? And it's like, look, that, he, he didn't talk about those kind of details. One thing I learned from him is avoid eschatological speculation. So you're like, well, why are we doing this class then, Pastor? We're going to have a whole bunch of eschatological speculation. I'm going to try to avoid. All right. There's, there's one aspect of my book that is probably speculative, but I've got some good verses under it. For the most part, I'm, that's not what I'm doing. Um, but Calvin said this, And although we have advanced considerably in this meditation of the heavenly life, let us nevertheless acknowledge that if our mental capacity be compared with the height of this mystery, we still remain at the very lowest roots. In other words, if you think about what we're thinking about and you think about how well you think, generally, okay, you must admit that this thing's going to overwhelm your capacity quickly. I mean, the circuit breaker is going to trip over quickly because honestly, it's just so huge. To continue with Calvin, <clears throat> in this matter, we must all the more then keep sobriety, lest forgetful of our limitations, we should soar aloft with the greater boldness and be overcome by the brightness of the heavenly glory. I wonder if he's thinking about that mythological story about Icarus who made you know, wings with wax and flew too high and, and the sun melted the wax and he fell to the earth and died. So what he's saying is don't do that. Don't, don't fly high up above the plains and you end up crashing back down to the earth. So let's keep sober-minded about our meditation. Uh, he said, we also feel how we are titillated by an immoderate desire to know more than is lawful. From this trifling and harmful questions repeatedly flow forth. All right, so that will probably happen over the next number of weeks, trifling and harmful questions. Probably from me, because I think about it, it's like, well, I wonder what this means. Maybe this or maybe that. Look, there's only so much that, that the Scripture reveals. And so Calvin's saying, let's not do that. Trifling, I say, for from them no profit can be derived. But this second kind is worse because those who indulge in them entangle themselves in dangerous speculations. Accordingly, I call these questions harmful. So he's just putting like boundaries or fences around our heavenly uh, uh, meditation so that we would not go too far. Now, Randy Alcorn, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Heaven. Um, I think it's like 450 pages long. Have any of you read it? Show me your hands. If you've read some of Alcorn's book, just a few of you. All right, some of it. I <laughs> didn't finish it. Um, you know, I, I think it's a phenomenal book. I love it, and I think what it does uh, very, very well is it blows open and destroys, just gets rid of a boring heaven. A heaven where you're sitting on some cloud somewhere strumming a harp 
And when you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you're gonna be a really good harp player by then. <laughs> and it's like, is that what we're talking about? And, and he actually amasses quotes from pastors, Christian leaders saying they actually are dreading heaven because you get the feeling of boredom, of sameness, of there's really not one single thing that I like to do here on earth that I'd wanna do for eternity. All right, so it's just, and, and Alcorn just does a good job of saying, look, that is just faulty and probably satanic. That if Satan can trick us into thinking heaven's going to be boring and not a place you really want to go, then what are you left with then? Where are we heading? And so it's very sad, and he does a great job blowing that apart. Um, this is what he wrote. We need, what we need is biblically inspired imagination. The moment that we say that we can't imagine heaven, we dump cold water on all that God has revealed to us about our eternal home. If we can't envision it, we can't look forward to it. If heaven is unimaginable, why even try? And he would also say, this isn't him, but I think part of his book is, if heaven is undesirable, how devastating is that? If it's unimaginable, why try? If it's undesirable, well, what are we doing this for? Um, if you don't really want to go to heaven, then I'm not sure what's left. But on the other hand, if you really do want to go to heaven, if you can say what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm looking forward to dying. Looking forward to dying. I'm looking forward to living. And it's not my choice, God's choice. But I want to do both. But I want to do heaven more. Can you not see how healthy that is? What a healthy way to live. And how much you can display that to people who are without hope and without God in the world. Right. This week, somebody very close to me who's not a Christian, um, based on the fact that she is receiving uh, only palliative care from now on in her life. And I said to her, well, what you need then is just to be ready to die. A, a day later, she called me and said, how do I get ready to die? So, uh, we had a great conversation about the thief on the cross. Isn't it interesting? Let me say something aside about the thief on the cross. I've thought about this, okay? He did zero for God <laughs> until the very end of his life. But wouldn't you think there'd be more people in heaven that could walk up to him and say, I'm here because of you. Compare him to Barnabas, all right? Who lived a better life between the two of them? That's easy, Barnabas. But how many people are going to walk up to Barnabas and say, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you? His own generation would uh, be a, bit, a good crew. And then their spiritual, you know, descendants. But Thief on the Cross has given hope to evangelists family members that go to bedside, you know, again and again and again. So that's like, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Here's a guy that did nothing for God, lived selfishly and criminally his whole life, and then has this huge horde of people in heaven because of him. So that's just, that's amazing. You know, in my book, what I'm saying is that we'll know the thief on the cross as such. You are the thief on the cross. Nice to meet you. If there's a memory wipe, he's just another guy in a white robe. And that's just weird, friends. Um, you know, just millions, hundreds of millions of all the same in white robes. Another white robe person, and I'm a white robe person. Nice to meet you. You know, and there's just zero heritage and history. It's just, you can see how ridiculous that is. Uh, all right, so what is my method? Well, having sat at the feet of my mentor, John Calvin, I don't want to go beyond where we should go. Um, I want to try to support everything that I say from Scripture. Sound exegesis. I'm going to do the best I can. A Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either, listen to this, expressly set down in Scripture or, thank God for the or, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Actually, many of the, of the theological pillars of our faith 
come from deductions of various scriptures that are put together, not just one text, like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. There isn't just one Trinitarian text. There is the baptismal formula to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't unfold the fullness of the doctrine of the Trinity. It has to be put together from various texts. That's just the work of theology. So that's what we're doing here. We're doing the work of theology. We're going to put it together. We're going to take a little of this, a little of this, a little of this. We're going to make sure that we're understanding them properly, put it together, and it's like, wow, kind of explodes. And just the idea for me, this has been explosive, the idea of a dynamic heaven in which the people who are there will develop. That's us. You can be perfect, but incomplete in heaven. You will never be omniscient. Keep that in mind. You will never be omniscient. Do you know what that means? You can always learn something. And once you understand that, that you can always learn something, the, question, the next question is, what's there to learn? Much. Much. There's much you don't know about what God has done. And there's much He wants to teach you. And when He teaches you, you'll marvel and give Him glory. And that's a good thing. That's the basic dynamic I'm getting at here. And when you look at that, it's like, all right, well, how big is this going to get? Well, that's what the class is about. It's like he did a lot. God did a lot. And so we're going to find out about it. So we're going to try to put scriptures together. Where I feel led to speculate, that is go beyond textual assertions, state it as speculation, and be willing to present it as a ground for consideration. So uh, this is where I talk about visionary, spirit-saturated time travel. So uh, we'll, we'll get to all that. Before you start thinking, have I joined a cult? Um, no, uh, I, I, you've not, but I'm going to just lay that out there and we'll talk about it in due time. So that's the most speculative part of my book, uh, whether it, you know, if I could just say what I mean, that God will not merely tell us what he did, but show us what he did. That would be pretty cool. And I've got some verses on that, but not enough. All right, so if you can find some more to help me with that, I'd appreciate it, but I have not found any, uh, other than the fact that God did it to the Apostle John forward in time. So why couldn't he make the reverse trip with the rest of us back in time to show us what he did? We'll get to all that, all right? So don't freak out, all right? But it's going to be pretty exciting. All right, so let's, uh, let's look at the basic structure here of what we're talking about. Heaven illuminated by the glory of God, past, present, and future. All right, we've already seen that God's glory will illuminate heaven. Uh, Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. It's really amazing how basically, in, in one verse, especially in Isaiah, it says the sun will be ashamed to give its light. So there's a sense of the shame of the sun. What's interesting there is the sun does an okay job compared to God, but God will do a better job. So he delegated to the sun and the moon and the stars the job of shedding light in the fourth day of creation. But God said, let there be light way back at the beginning. And so he can do light. Actually, I had a very smart um, Chinese atheist scholar say that this proves the Bible's not the word of God, right? Because it says, let there be light on the first day, but he didn't create the sun, moon, and the stars until the fourth day. Ta-da, Bible's not inspired. It's like, well, let me ask you a question. He worked at Duke. I said, where do you work? I said, uh, he said, at Duke Laboratory. I said, is there a basement to that? He said, yeah. I said, any windows down there? No. Oh, then it's pitch black. It's like, no, there are lights down there. It's like, oh, the human race can do lights where there's no sun, moon, and stars, but God can't? He's like, huh, good point. Anyway, <laughs> look, God can do light very well. God is really good at light. And he just says effectively to the sun, moon, and stars, you're not needed anymore. I'll just do it from here on. 
And so every ray of light in the new heaven, new earth, and new, uh, new Jerusalem, all of that will be God's glory, God's shining. And we're just going to see God everywhere. Only we won't be idolaters. We won't be worshiping the creature, the creature rather than the creator. We will be just giving glory to God. Everywhere we see beauty, we'll just say God made that. God did that. So what is God's glory? This is really pretty important. We need to understand what that means. The glory of God, a simple way of understanding, is the radiant display of his attributes. The radiant display of his nature. Attributes are just adjectives that describe him, such as God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, uh, loving, powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, you know, um, omnipresent, uh, eternal. You know, all these, there's like, I have a list of like 27 attributes that I found in seven or eight different systematic theologies. That's, you know, the list of all the attributes. So God's nature put on radiant display. So there's a combination of brightness and display and then God. So God is put on display. So we're supposed to live our lives in such a way that God is glorified. We're supposed to glorify God. What that means is we are supposed to put God on display. We're supposed to, when people watch us, they're supposed to see what kind of God we love and serve. They can see that he is this kind of God or that kind of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, on the day he visits us. So there's this sense of the radiant display. So the heaven is all about that. It's all about answering the question, what kind of God do we love and serve? What is he like? Okay, so the display. If I could just stay uh, for a moment and say there are two great sources of, the, of that radiant display. Um, the first is directly from God himself, to see the face of God, what's, what, what some people call the beatific vision, to actually be able to do what Moses could not do, which is see God's glory directly and not be destroyed. And so we will have received by then an upgrade, uh, resurrection body, resurrection eyes, resurrection mind, ready to receive in ways we can't. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We would... We would die, all right? Moses uh, could not see God's glory, all right? But he saw a very tiny, tiny, tiny portion, trailing portion of the glory of God. So a direct display of the glory of God, that's the first and greatest way that God shows his glory. The second is what God has done, his works. These are the two great displays of the glory of God, who he is and what he's done. Now, my book is all about the fact that we won't forget in heaven what he's done. And it just seems, the more you talk, it just seems like kind of a no-brainer. If all we're doing is just looking directly at the face of God, then what about all of the displays of God over millennia of history? That's what we're going to see, what kind of God he is. Now, the greatest display of the glory of God is in his redeemed, redeemed by his Son, by the works of his Son. That's the centerpiece of his glory. It's greater than anything else he did. And that is to redeem sinners like you and me, his sons and daughters. Can someone read Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 for us? By the way, that's an interesting verse. It's the only verse in the Bible that directly says that God made us for his glory. Everybody knows that. But there are no other verses, interestingly, that say it that plainly and clearly. So it's an important verse. What he's saying is, I made my sons and my daughters to display my glory. I created them originally, knit them together in their mother's womb. I gave them physical life, but even better, I gave them eternal life. I saved them through faith in Christ for my own glory, to display my glory. That's why you were made. And so what's so exciting is in heaven, you will both see glory and be glory. All right, both. 
you yourself will be glorious. You'll be worth looking at. And what I mean by that is not that you'll be gods and goddesses. We're not becoming Mormons here, okay? What I mean is that when you shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father, you're going to be putting certain aspects of God on display. And they will be unique to you. I won't say, like, you're the only one of all of the hundreds and hundreds of millions of God's children that are just like you. That's not so much it, the uniqueness of it. But I'm saying there's still an aspect of you and your story and your history that's unique. And there's aspects of God's glory that's worth seeing. And so you will be glory, or better, glorious. You will be glorious, but you will also see glory. And you'll see glory face to face with God. You'll be on your face worshiping Him. But you'll also be horizontally looking around and seeing glorious brothers and sisters. And you'll be saying effectively, praise God for who you are. Praise God for what He did in you and through you. And you'll be saying that more times than you can count. You've got a lot of people to meet. <laughs> and they're going to meet you. And um, you will not be a shy, retiring hermit, uh, you know, introvert. It's like, all right, I've really had it with people right now. I'm just about done. You know, so many people. Um, you won't be like that at all. Um, you'll be free from all that. Um, and you will just be excited to meet your brothers and sisters. And there'll be, some of them live 700, 900 years before you, 1,000, 1,400 years before you, totally different cultures, different contexts. There's just a lot to learn. And there's a lot of God's glory to see. It's pretty exciting. All right, so God will not have the slightest beam of his glory lost. He does not will that the glorious things he did be forgotten. That's what I'm saying. You know, he does not will that it be forgotten. One of the scriptures that is not directly related to this, but I think about this. Remember after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus commanded the apostles to gather up the fragments that were on the ground. Do you remember what he said? Why they should do that? Let nothing be wasted. So if you're talking about a little piece of bread on the ground or a little piece of uneaten fish, I'm like, how much more what God did to save somebody, right? What missionary he sent to what country that did certain, I mean, why should that be lost through forgetfulness? God does not will that anything be wasted. Let's look at it and celebrate it and see it. All right, so if you can, in, in your mind, just transport yourself, because this past, present, future thing is sometimes hard to grasp, but just imagine now you're in heaven which you're not, okay? But just imagine that you are. All right, so here you are, you're in the New Jerusalem, you're radiant and glorious, you're in your resurrection body. What I'm saying is that the display of God's glory will be in three categories, past, present, and future. Okay, so when you're there, you will have a past experience of God's glory, a present experience of God's glory, and a future experience of God's glory. Let's talk about the middle one first. It's easiest to understand. Present experience of God's glory. So there you are in the new Jerusalem. You're in the new heaven, new earth. What will be the present experience you'll have at that point of the glory of God? What will be going on at that point for you? How will you see the glory of God? Kind of already read the verses. So. All right, you'll see him face to face. So surrounding the throne, that will be a present experience of the glory of God. All right, what else? No darkness. No darkness. Okay. Where will you be? You'll be in a beautiful place, and it's given in Revelation 21 and 22. What names? The New Jerusalem and the New Heaven, New Earth. So those new, 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 New Heaven, New Earth, New Jerusalem, all of those are worth meditating on. What does that mean? Okay, so when you see it, it will be glorious. And I often think about exploration, right? Just seeing what God has made. Um, and you will 
experience the glory, as I've already hinted at, the glory of the redeemed. All right? You'll be able to see and experience perfect fellowship with other brothers and sisters. Perfect peace and joy. It's awesome. So that's present. That's all just present. All right? And that, I think, is what most people that think much about heaven think about, and they should. So there it is in Revelation 21 22. You're seeing, you know, the streets of gold, pearly gates. You know, it wasn't like, like poets and authors that made that up, but it's, it's in Revelation, a uh, single pearl. Um, and just all these radiant um, stones, translucence, gold that's translucent. Hard to understand what that means. Is all that the beauty of the place and the glory? Yeah, it just seems everything design is designed to drink in and emanate the glory of God. It all seems to be about that. Nothing blocks your view. It's like I can't see God because of all the gold that's in the way. No, it's just, it's just radiant with the glory of God. So it's, it's almost like language gets stretched to the breaking point, but this is what God has given us to meditate on. So anyway, that's it. Future glory, the Bible says almost nothing about. It's really deductions. Here's, here's my thinking. What is future glory? You could imagine to some degree a history of heaven. Why would God give you a resurrected body that's filled with perfect energy. I mean, just limitless energy. You never get tired. And a perfect mind to comprehend and put two and two together and do all kinds of stuff. And a perfect heart so that all you want is to glorify God and nothing to do. I'm thinking that there'll just be things to do. And that when it talks in Revelation 21-22 uh, um, about the glory of the nations being brought into the New Jerusalem, you could either say that's looking back, that that's the redemption of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's fine. Or it could be talking about just the nations doing glorious things and bringing it to God to give Him the glory. So I can't say much about that because I would go, be going very quickly into speculation. And as soon as John Calvin sees me in heaven, he will be happy to see me. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder on the judging aspect, I, I wonder if that is referring to Judgment Day or if it's talking about governance. And to some degree, uh, there is aspect of the possibility of different levels of responsibility. So there would be government, created beings with certain powers like archangels, ruler angels, and they will rule over other perfect redeemed people with no jealousy and no tyranny, just that. And there's indication in certain parables and other places of that as well. So there's numbers of things, and Randy Alcorn does a very good job developing these kinds of things. Probably a little bit beyond boundaries, I might say, but it's pretty cool and pretty exciting. So all of that would be the future glory. I'm not, that's not what my book's about. My book is about past glory. My book is about the backward look, history, and looking at what God did in the present world, in, in this world filled with woe, filled with sorrow and sin and death, what God did to redeem his people. That's what we're looking at. So past, present, and future glory, all right? So we're talking about a dynamic heaven, and dynamic heaven, what that means, not static, but dynamic, all right? So meditate on this. I've already said it once today. You will never be omniscient. You will never be God. It will be the case that everything you know will be true. And you won't forget anything. But it also will be true that you can always learn more. Right? Or else you would be God. As I heard Erwin Lutzer say once, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? What does that mean? <laughs> so I had to ponder that. It's like, ha, ha, and then like an hour later, it's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? That nothing has ever occurred to God. 
He already knew it. Nothing ever pops into God's mind. So that means when you kneel to pray, what are you teaching God about the situation you're praying about? You're teaching him nothing. God, my friend is in the hospital. She has a serious illness. Like, oh, really? You know? Wow. What do you think I should do about it? I'm really at a loss here. No idea. I mean, it's really the other way around. God already knows what you need before you ask. Jesus said he already is on it, etc. You're not. You need to get up with the program, etc. And by praying, we do more and more. It's not, it's not true that prayer doesn't do anything. It does. It's a mystery what it does, but it does. Prayer changes things. That's a weird slogan because I don't know what it changes it from, an alternate reality or something like that when you didn't pray. All I'm saying is prayer is powerful and effective. James says that. God uses prayers. But I'm just saying God already knew it. And so like even theological meditations on the sequencing of, or, or of the decrees and all that, that's just human thing. God already knew everything. He knew what, we, what he was going to do before the creation of the world. It wasn't like he worked it out. It was like 130 days of meditation and finally it hit him to send Jesus into the world as an atoning sacrifice. He already knew it. We will not be like that. We will be human. What that means is our thinking process will be lesser than God's. It will not be so comprehensive. It will still be linear, A, then B, then C, then D. I believe in heaven, no forgetfulness, no Alzheimer's, no dementia, no sinful forgetting, right? But that doesn't mean you're thinking about everything all the time. How could you? Then you would become like God. You can, I think, hold six or seven trains of thought together in your mind. I heard that actually Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching, had seven trains of thought in his mind at once. He actually said about that. I'm like, what in the world? All right, if I tried to do that in a few minutes, you would hear a jumble coming out of my mouth. I actually had one time when I was preaching through my outline and I was missing five pages in my outline. It went from page four to page nine. So I had two tracks of thought going on in my mind at that point. <laughs> Keep talking, say helpful things, say true things. All right, what am I going to do about this? <laughs> I got a problem. <laughs> How can I write a third of a sermon right in front of people? The Holy Spirit helped me saying, you're an expositor, trust the text and talk about the next verse. <laughs> and that got me through. But all I'm saying is in heaven will not be God. We'll, we'll have a number of things we can elevate. But this is what I think part of the joy will be. Putting things together. Putting this person and their circumstance and this was going on at the same time. And two years later they met. But you see how God was preparing the one for the other. Maybe marriage or maybe evangelist and evangelized or something. And how much of that will there be to talk about? Again, more than you can count. I think enough to fill eternity. And again, that's not all we're doing. We're not just doing the backward look. We're also doing the present and the future stuff. I'm just saying that we will be able to look back and see what God did and celebrate it. And it's pretty awesome. And so, again, foreground background memory. I think that that's when we talk to the, about the difficult topic of remembering our sins. It's not like we're going around thinking about our sins all the time. What a sinner, what a sinner, what a sinner. Thank God for grace. I don't think so. It's just background, but necessary background. Without that story of Saul of Tarsus beating up Christians, we won't be able to celebrate God's grace to, to the Apostle Paul, right? And so without the story of our sins, which he covered 
and caused us to repent from and caused us to, you know, to be renewed. And then he used us. We won't be able to see his glory. But it's not like we're going around like you meet Paul. It's like, oh, aren't you the blasphemer and the persecutor and the violent man? Actually, yeah, I also wrote Romans and planted some churches. So this is a dynamic heaven, continually learning. The place is becoming effectively more and more glorious. The more the redeemed learn, the more they will see how great God and Christ are. And so it then gives you some insights in uh, Isaiah 9-7, where it says in one translation, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So in other words, a continual multiplication of increase of Christ's kingdom. But I believe, it's, it's, I think it's easy to prove that there's no procreation in heaven, there's no multiplication of population in heaven, just a set number of people will not marry or be given in marriage, be like the angels in heaven. So then how will the government continually increase? This may be one answer to that question. By the people there having a greater and greater sense of the greatness of Christ. Ever greater sense of how wonderful and majestic he is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, the, the applications of this are really amazing and, and manifold. You know, one of them, we'll get there, we'll not talk about it, but just rewards. Just store up treasure in heaven. Just live such a life that you'll just have tons and tons and tons of rewards in heaven. I believe that reward has to do with heavenly capacity. So in other words, increase your capacity for heavenly glory. I don't believe every one of the redeemed will have equal capacity in heaven. I think we'll all be perfectly happy, but not equally happy. I just think there's just going to be differences from one to another. And so how you live now, the more heroic you live. We're about to hear about the widow putting in two little copper coins which is a big part of my, one of the chapters of my book, which is God's delight in obscure people. So that's, that's what the sermon's going to be about. You get a little foretaste here. That's the angle I'm going to take, is, is Jesus just knows obscure people and celebrates what they did. And that's pretty awesome when you think about it. So, no, you don't even need to come. But there's some details, so you should come and listen. All right, so we're going to learn history in heaven. No religion in the world is so dependent on history as Christianity. I have a whole chapter on that. And I'll tell you, the, of all the chapters that I've ever written, this one is the, one, the meatiest. You talk about milk and meat. It is a hard chapter to read. Um, and it's like, well, why even go there? Well, I just think it's consistent with the theme of the book. What will we remember? There are three difficult things that people ask always about this. And it's like, will we remember our sins? Will we remember our sufferings? And will we remember our loved ones that were damned? Yes, yes, yes. But no, death, mourning, crying, or pain. Memory, but no pain. Now, that's not true of them. They'll have nothing but death, mourning, crying, and pain. So I wrote the, the chapter title is, uh, is uh, memory, Memories of the Damned. So it's got a double hearing, basically. It's a, it's a two-way hearing. It's like our memory of them and their memories. So one of the things they'll remember will be, I think, evangelistic opportunities that they did not take advantage of. The fact that they will remember is pretty clear from Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Abraham says to the rich man, remember, son, that in your life you had good things. So will they remember? Yes. Will Lazarus remember? Why would would the rich man remember, but Lazarus won't remember? He'll remember, too. He'll remember that he was a poor person with sores that dogs licked. So, yes, they'll remember. But how we remember, it's all about one thing. Heaven's about one thing. What is it? Glory of God. How do the damned glorify God? It is not true that they don't. It is true that they do. But you need, you need teeth 
you need theological teeth, you, you need maturity to be able to meditate on this, that you will be able to look on the damned and see the glory of God in their just punishment, and you will see it the way the angels do, you'll see it the way God does, and you won't shrink back and you won't be hiding it from the kids. Like, what's that billowing smoke over there? Don't worry about it, just enjoy your meal. Yeah, so I, I, abs I absolutely believe that, but we've jumped way ahead, and you're like, whoa, there's all kinds of stuff here. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot, a lot going, going on, but I just am not arguing for a memory wipe. I'm not arguing for a, uh, you know, for a limited amnesia. I'm saying, we'll remember, we'll remember, we'll remember, but no death, mourning, crying, or pain, all right? All right, I was going to talk about history uh, and limitations, but we'll stop there and pick up next time, God willing.